Good day, good evening, and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra. This is Renegade Roundtable. And here we are with round two with Firebrand, Dynamo, Activist, Disability Rights Crusader, and the main brain and wingnut of wheelchair sports cap hip hop group, Denver Zone, Kalen Heffernan. And so, so now we both took a pee break. You took a weed break. Pee and weed. Uh, do you smoke for uh, strictly for pleasure or is it also medicinal? It's mostly for pleasure. Uh, but I have been dabbling into the edible world a little more for for pain if I need it. Uh, do you feel a lot of pain all the time or uh, comes and goes? I've been I've been really lucky most of my life um, to not have pain in between being broken, which isn't as regular as it used to be as a kid so um but but now that i'm getting older now i'm 36 i am starting to deal with like weather pain and achy pain and starting to break bones like doing less traumatic things you know just like i don't i don't even know like stress fractures which is new for me so yeah, it's a it's a new world. Um, but but I've been I've been really lucky most of my life to to not yeah. have a lot of pain associated with my uh broken bones. Unless, except when they're broken, which does suck and hurts. Yeah, because so you do feel it, and it doesn't feel too good. No, but um, I have a pretty for, high for the... pain tolerance. <laughs> yeah, uh, high, yeah, higher higher drug tolerance. And... So. And for anybody who didn't hear our first hour, what is the name of your condition again? It's called osteogenesis imperfecta, uh, a.k.a. AKA brittle bones, um, commonly called OI for short. Oi, oi, (laughs) oi. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about music itself. When we first met that night at the Wax Track store and you told me about what you did to Senator Cory Gardner's office, which never stops cracking me up. And I think it was before you and before you ran for mayor, though, and you gave me a CD of wheelchair sports camps titled No Big Deal. And I thought, okay, I'll listen to this when the time comes. And I assumed it was a pump. Punk, punk band. I just, you know, just for some reason, activism, somebody wanting to meet me, this must mean it's a punk band. Then I put it on, and uh, luckily I didn't wipe out in my mom's car or whatever while driving. Like, what is this? What it is? It's just like it's like an electronic Captain Beefheart in its own weird way. And I don't—you probably don't know who he is, but a lot of listeners will. But it doesn't really sound like that either. It was just—I don't. It was abstract. It was different. I didn't immediately peg it as hip hop either. Although I eventually, like you know, this is kind of like a a very 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 weird version of hip hop. More power to them. And then uh, later on, um, so I became a little more familiar, um, your ace videographer and our mutual good friend Chris Bagley, who is also responsible for Wesley Willis's Joyride, by far the best documentary film about Wesley Willis. And he's grown as a videographer and everything else, and now he's working with you. And out up went this video called a song called Yes, I'm a Mess. And even the still picture of you, and then which is the, and, and then the song itself is like, oh my god, this is still damn near unclassifiable. It's really, really great. And those two things, unclassifiable and really, really great, meant, hmm, should I finally ask and see if you want to put any vinyl or anything out on alternative tentacles? And you did. And on the other side of the seven inch, um, you ha- you offered one newer track. And I said, no, this is introducing wheelchair sports camp to probably a lot of new people and mostly people who did not hear the CD that came out years ago that Sage Francis put out, the hip-hop artist and stuff. So on the other side was one of the early anthems to get people clued in. It's uh, Hard Out There Being a Gimp. And that is round one before the hoped-for album. 
And here we are. Here we are. It was an easy yes because, yeah, <laughs> uh, we always want to put out vinyl. And I love vinyl. And it's not an easy thing to put out. So thank you oh, for putting it out it. and putting it into the world. And, yeah, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you got to see the video. And that's Chris Bagley and I's uh, third video together now. So that guy... Um, has a lot of footage of me. <laughs> he's going to get all the video of this of both of us, too. So we'll see what... I, he's making a documentary about you, isn't he? Yeah. He's been following me around with the camera for a long time. Well, well, he did a great job on the one we followed Wesley around for a long time and even met members of his family and many, many other things. So um, when we met to have a meeting, Mark Bliesner was there again, and Chris was there too, I think, um, mm -hmm. at this uh, center where your recording studio you work out of is. At the time, it seemed like you were so dialed in on making the video singles and dropping one after the other after the other over time and then not even putting out uh, hard copy audio at all. It didn't strike me as, as where you really were interested in vinyl very much, but oh yeah, well, we'll do this. Why not? So sounds like either you got more interested or you were more interested than I thought you were. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't, and also... We didn't have vinyl... Uh, Sage Francis and Strange Famous Records did output did put out like a a very small run, uh, seven inch, and that went went pretty oh, it was quick. Oh, seven inch. Um, and uh -oh. I vinyl we, junkie record collector me wants one. Yeah, and we uh we we've always wanted to put no big deal out on vinyl, um, but. The packaging of No Big Deal, which you have, uh, is a pop-up house. So right. in order to make the package for a 12-inch to pop out, you know, it, it's going to take a big flex. And I don't know if I'm willing to let go of of the art concept. Um, so, yeah, we yeah, never got I, to I the only way I can say the only compromise I can think of is normally I really get annoyed if somebody puts out a vinyl 12 inch and then throws a CD booklet in and calls the insert art complete. Oh, that that just drives that. me nuts. But in this case, except this one, it is a pop-up thing. You have to assemble it and it's 3D. It's like, uh, you know, like some of those pop-up Christmas cards only involves a little more work on the person who's brought it home. So the CD version of that thrown into a 12-inch LP would probably be kosher in a case like that. So people got the pop-up house. Mm, good idea. Yeah. Well, where did the name come from? No big deal for the band name. Wheelchair Sports Camp. Wheelchair Sports Camp. It came from, not surprisingly, a wheelchair sports camp. <laughs> there right. is a local wheelchair sports camp here in Colorado. It's called the Colorado Junior Wheelchair Sports Camp. I attended it as a kid. And um, it's actually really dope. It's It's free. Um, they bus in kids from all across the city. It's so many wheelchairs just taking over uh, high school for a week during the summer. They provide food. They do a trophy ceremony. It's like, well, it's super cool. But, you know, I was I was too cool for it, but I still went every year and brought my friends. And, you know, we would, like, ditch and go do bad things. And, uh <laughs> We, yeah, we like the only sport we really played was like tennis, but we never really followed our group. Um, I, I did volunteer as a teenager once, once I could drive and, um, and yeah, I still try to go every year and get my shirt and, uh, I get a Google alert now for the name wheelchair sports camp. So you know, I get all kinds of informational news about different wheelchair sports camps all across the world. However, this one here in Colorado, I think, is the only one that I've seen a uh, full week long that's free. Um, free food, free shirt, free transportation. So big ups to wheelchair sports camp here in Colorado. I did 
I did tell them, and I don't know if I quite asked for permission to use the name, but but we're cool. They they're they're cool with it. We've thrown some benefit shows for them, and uh, well, there you go. Yeah, they've been doing I was it for ask about the fun- Ask about the funding and hoping it wasn't from Coors or the Koch brothers. No, although shit. If they need to get the money from wherever they can to make it free, yeah. then so right. But right, uh, right. that's a good question. I I never have been involved in the funding, um, but it 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 was started by a group of adaptive PE teachers in Denver uh-huh. Public Schools or Aurora Public, probably Aurora Public Schools actually. So. Big ups to them. And with Wheelchair Sports Camp, I noticed some of your bio stuff identifies you as queer core as well. Or, you know, as queer activist as well. Do you find any kind of a label like that limiting at all? No, queer is cool because it's so big. You know, it's a big umbrella. I mean, I'm cool with just gay too, you know. Like, to me, gay is like the whole umbrella of queerness but for other people gay is like strictly with the same gender um so yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm queer i'm gay i'm, I'm that and it is it limiting yeah it can't be no for me it's definitely more liberating than being straight than liberating more liberating than ghettoizing and yeah. do, oh, it's a queer core band. I don't need to listen to that. Oh, yes, you do. No, it's liberating. I would hate to be straight. Yeah, straight. No offense, but <laughs> being straight is more limiting for me. Yeah, well, for me, too. If I was born bisexual, there might have been a lot less lonely nights years ago. Yeah. But, but I just was not made that way. I'm sorry. Me, too. Okay. But uh, how do you how do you identify? You say queer and gay. Do you identify uh, female or something else? I like all the pronouns: she, her, they, them, he, him. I mean, I rock a mustache. I've always dressed very tomboyish, but um, I still identify with lots of my femininity and. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty open. <laughs> I identify as open. There you go. There you go. And being so late to the party, and it's just amazing how many of these different underground scenes and even hip-hop versus punk or versus rock or versus other kinds of hip-hop and things, how many people just miss finding out about cool things? I mean, Matt Kelly, my longtime engineer from Tumor Circus up through White People of the Damage Done, uh, Jelby Offer of the Guantanamo School of Medicine and all. Um, he's mainly a hip-hop engineer and a name hip-hop engineer who started out second engineering digital underground around the same time he and I were working on Tumor Circus at Hyde Street Studios. That led to a little bit of work with Tupac and then a lot of other people hitting him up over the years from uh, the coup to hieroglyphics to... So of mischief of course and uh and many others so he he identifies that way too and he he's you know way dialed into local underground hip-hop and some in atlanta where he moved to but he's about to move back but anyway um and he would complain to me from time to time about you know it really frustrates me how there's so little creative experimentation in hip-hop now it's kind of Hmm. kind of bugging me and i'm getting a little bored i send him wheelchair sports camp and he flipped he got it right away i was like i want to produce them i want to work on something with them these people are great and he totally got it from a hip from a hip-hop point of view but if you if if your partner's moving to denver to be with you instead of the other way around well Mm -hmm. you said it can always be done remotely by mail though so you and matt may one day cross paths and who knows he may bring in his own people We'll still be in the bay often. Um, right. Yeah, right. I'd be happy to go out there. And yeah, that just, it did make, it does make me think about how like, yeah, li- some of the labels, especially around hip hop, because it's such a male dominated, you know, style of music. But yeah, I mean, recording engineering is <laughs> even more of a boys club. Producing, just a producer is like even more that being said like i think 
being um being a femme, being a queer, being disabled, even you know, yeah, just being who I am. I think one thing that I was really just turned off by was like those boxes of of checking identities, and it's like you know, I always wanted to be a good rapper. You know, I didn't just want to be like a good female rapper. I didn't want to just be a good disabled rapper. I didn't want to be um, just a good gay rapper, you know? And yet, like, so I've kind of like shrugged away at the beginning of, you know, putting my music out there. Like, I didn't really want to be confined to those boxes and did feel limited. And, And the more that I, like, identified with myself and accepted my identities, like, uh, you know, because those are such a big part of my identities, like, it it wasn't fair for me to be like, I don't want to just be a good disabled rapper, but, like, I'm clearly in a wheelchair. I got wheelchair in the band name. I'm making puns and punchlines about being in a wheelchair it's like part of me feeling limited by all that was also like a lot of like internalized ableism and like internalized um masculinity right like I just wanted to be like compared to all these good dude rappers that I came up with and not just them I mean I did come up on a lot of like women fronted heavy identifying um empowering feminists you know tlc the salt and pepper and uh missy elliott like those those three like shaped me and like i i don't think i would have been so into rap if if it wasn't fronted by them i mean because because your own sound is so unique there is another revival going on and punk or indie or whatever underground of people making electronic punk and rock records and often very lo-fi and making them at home Mm -hmm. not all of it's become kind of its own scene in some ways there's not a huge number of them they probably all know each other but even though you wouldn't be classified as punk i am guessing some of those people and some of that audience are going to dial in on the yes i'm a mess seven inch Cool. I think they're they're gonna they're gonna get into it too. I mean, yeah, and I I kind of I wasn't really like in the punk world, but I think like my approach to making music has always been pretty punk and like lo-fi and DIY. Like, um, yeah, I couldn't afford to pay dudes to to make beats for me. Like, I wouldn't have been able to like pay dudes to play the guitar for me, you know. So I had to do it myself and taught myself and started like you know becoming more closer with dope musicians and um learned how to like record it and capture it and sample things yeah so i you know this microphone that i'm on is like the only microphone i've ever had like every record has been (laughs) recorded on it up till a certain time where like we were recording in a studio studio um so I I hope I hope it translates still to that because that's definitely where I come from. Well, your studio studio where you uh, you do indeed you write your stuff, you record your stuff, you produce your stuff, and probably at least you know mix your stuff or have help here and there with all of it. But this studio isn't that the one that we got together and hung out in while we were talking about putting the record out and your actual home in I believe public housing is right across the street tell us about this facility because it's part of a larger facility that's really cool yeah I teach I teach for a nonprofit organization in town called youth on record youth on record was started by a band here in town called the flowbots um, oh, rap- yeah rock um guys and they started a organization youth on record was the music production class um when i got out of college for recording i started like booking some of their shows so i was doing more like talent by like booking and hosting and i was pretty eager to like go and volunteer in the class i wasn't working at the time yeah i've been teaching with them ever since and over the years like we acquired this dope place here in in 
West Denver, and it was like a big partnership with Denver Housing Authority and a bunch of other different funders to have a recording studio. Um, and then I scored and got an apartment close by. So yeah, I have access to a, a much better studio than my backpack studio now. <laughs> and um, that's awesome. Yeah. And the, you know, the older I get for sure, and like the more hopefully professional team I can put together like it is ideal to have other people do things for me now and not just do it all myself I think there is a certain point where that can be a little limiting you know it's like I can't be an expert in all these things um and I've I've learned to do them because I needed to you know and and certain things like yeah, I'm better at than some people, but for the most part, like it, you know, mastering engineers are like masters of that art, you know, right. and mixing engineers are masters of that art. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's nice to not do every single thing myself. And though, like I, I wouldn't trade it. And, and when other weird things happen and other projects come up, like depending on the budget, I know how to do all these things. So like for the mayor thing, you know, we didn't need a budget to make like campaign videos and commercials and stuff. <laughs> like, I, Yeah. I made, the, I made my own logo and, I do quite a bit of graphic arts because of the band and made the websites and made the videos right. and do the, do the drawings. What else uh, can people come study and learn at Youth on Record? It's not just recording studio stuff, is it? No, so we teach a bunch of four-credit classes in high schools across the town. Um, wow typically like credit recovery programs or like yeah I taught in a treatment center for a long time so kids were court ordered to to live there they're so basically incarcerated um so um that was a music production class I've mostly only t uh, taught music production but I'm transitioning out of teaching into doing a more like professional development mentorship for students that are just graduating. So they're no longer uh, public school students. So that'll be cool. But yeah, I've been teaching at Youth on Record for like shit a decade now. And we haven't always had that studio, but now that we do, it's been great. We've been there for maybe six years now, something like that. Um, and it's really just, been so like awesome to have access to that and, and share it with with youth and and yeah like it's also a good place to meet weirdos like you late at night uh -huh. while I'm trying to cut some vocals before I was actually cutting vocals the night that we hung out there um for our meow wolf room inside of meow wolf there's a song in there and uh, it's a 10 minute song. So I had to cut record. I had to cut my vocals that night. Oh, was that I after went. we hung out or before? That was after. That's why I was like, okay, everybody has to go now because I have to finish this. Because oh. the other thing we were, we were told, oh, it's too late. The neighbors get upset if there's too much noise down there. Oh, the yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe I did already record it. I just had to like mix it all. Cause I, you're right. Yeah. I did have, but you could usually track like vocals solo, you know, like as long as I'm not playing like the drums super late or like guitars. <laughs> yeah. It can't be a rehearsal right. space that late. And you've been rocking wheelchair sports camp as long or longer than you've been teaching. Like, is this year 11 or is it longer than that? What year is it? 2023? <laughs> Fuck. 2023 yeah, hard I think, to believe i think i mean it could probably date back to like 2009 maybe i feel like we started getting a little more like yeah our first trip out of denver was 2011 to south by southwest so um before you've toured a lot 
Excellent. That was two two years before that we started it. It wasn't always a band. Yeah, it's been a minute. Right. So what kind, you've toured a lot, actually. And what kind of venues book you? Is it in is it regular music venues or is there also disabled community stuff and activist organizations that bring you into different places? Well, touring, touring for the most part, I just was like booking anywhere that would take us. Um, if I was, if I was booking it for ourselves, you know, it's always more ideal to, to catch on somebody else's tour and, and be support. Um, right. so we did that right. a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there has been a time, I mean, I was pretty like used to playing in accessible venues, to be honest, like the DIY venue that, that Greg, my drummer started was very inaccessible. <laughs> and, um, because I'm so tiny, yeah, it, and I usually like bring my manual chair. Like it was, I was pretty used to doing like everything inaccessibly and being kind of the only one. And then it wasn't until we started touring that I realized like how many disabled people were listening and like how much support we did have. Um, Cause yeah, before leaving Denver, I didn't really know. I was like having like, a guilty conscience that like I wanted to make sure that it was like clearly listed somewhere that like if I was playing an inaccessible venue like I needed people to know so that like they didn't show up and and not know you know like and or make the venue get everybody in somehow yeah so I I did start like being a little bit more thoughtful about just like how I publish things and making sure like to include that information, but going on our first tour, we actually supported the Flowbots on a really big uh, nationwide tour, and uh, we played San Francisco Cafe de Nord, which I did not know was inaccessible, and I did not book, and I didn't think it would really be anything, but shit, all kinds of people were like emailing me, MySpace me, no, I don't think MySpace was still there, but... Um, they were pissed that I was playing this inaccessible venue. And that was the first time that I like encountered that. And, and we did like a free show on the sidewalk in front of the venue before soundcheck or maybe after soundcheck before the show show. So yeah, like, I don't know. I, I kind of like roll this weird line where because of the privilege I have to like be carried and like be okay with being carried a lot of times. Um, I think it's like more of a statement for me to like play and talk shit about it on stage, you know, which I which I do and and have always. Yeah. But um, I don't know. The older I get, and like you know, I got a boo in a chair, and um, I got more friends in the disability community. Like it is it does weigh on me more and um there have been times where like the disability community has like booked a show for us in portland actually like couldn't get a date couldn't get a date couldn't get a date and like somebody reached out and was like let us help you and it was packed with people with disabilities (laughs) like it was so dope yeah it is out there and like yeah i think I think doing the sit-in and like the crossover between my activism with like the disability world and like even just making this meow wolf room that's so like disability heavy. Um, I think, I think there is, there are a, a decent amount of disabled people listening to wheelchair sports camp. Well, you brought it up twice now, so let's detour to the Meow Wolf Complex in Denver. And not everybody tuning in is going to know what Meow Wolf is at all. Okay, yeah, Meow Wolf is a complex. (laughs) It's a big art facility um, started by some DIY guys and gals in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, they were able to acquire a pretty big space. And they made this like immersive attraction um, that also has a venue um, that we've played at. And they built their second, third location in Denver, Colorado. So it's like humongous. 
and they hired a lot of local artists to build like or design um permanent installations within this giant complex um and yeah we pitched like a wheelchair space kitchen there's a big ass wheelchair space kitchen in Wolf, denver um built by me and greg and my dad an iron worker and it's kind of like this wheelchair time portal uh Basically, like a DIY space from the that the old seventies act seventies and eighties activists left behind and built and retrofitted for themselves, and it's like this scrappy spot that weirdos like us are still occupying, and definitely like got a a future disability future um, vibe. It's 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 wild. It was it was a big flex. What I saw from the construction video was you were building both a uh, a retrofitted kitchen for somebody of your height and your disability to be able to do thing, you know, take care of themselves in the kitchen and feed themselves and all that good stuff, but also some rather large things, I think like sinks and other stuff way way high so anybody who stands up who's my height i think i'm what am i five eight or a little bit more than that and reaches up they can't reach it at all it's big it's way up there as a statement on what a uh, so-called normal kitchen would be like to try and cope with if you're in a wheelchair that's part of it too right yeah yeah originally we wanted to make it just like this tiny little kitchen where like Somebody like you would just be so uncomfortable in and like barely be able to crouch under, but that wasn't accessible. <laughs> so we couldn't build that. So we ended up getting like 15 feet ceilings, which is like almost three times the amount of of space we were hoping for. So we, we kind of flipped the script and, and one of the OG Meow Wolf guys had had an idea but yeah we're like maybe we distort some things up top and um yeah my kitchen right now which i'm very close to all the all the top cabinets are empty or like storage for my friends (laughs) like they're completely out of reach and of zero use to me so yeah the kitchen we built like the bottom half is is more like roll under counters and and curved out for a wheelchair the the sink handles are backwards so they're closer to the front of the counter like i can't reach too far to that back of the counter um and then everything up top right. is like out of a normal person's reach so and then there's like other little easter eggs hidden within the room for this other types of disabilities like you can feel the song if you open a certain drawer um if you roll under a certain counter like which you kind of have to be in a wheelchair like the the disco ball kicks on there's a low sensory fridge for people that are um stimulated by sensory because whoa meow wolf is very high sensory even even for people oh, yeah. that aren't yeah. super sensitive to it, it's 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 five floors of a lot of art and a lot of lights and a lot of sound. So oh, yeah. there's a space in our room that's like chill and calming. There's some hidden braille messages throughout. Yeah, the idea is that like you can't really access the full spectrum of the room unless you have each other. You know, unless you have different types of people, different sizes, different disabilities, different different ways of life. Because that's how we're going to, like, keep the planet alive. Yeah. That's how we survive the apocalypse is, like, relying on each other. No, I mean, when you've toured, you, uh, you've been to Canada, you've been to Mexico, South by Southwest, of course, where you encountered our old buddy Nardwar yeah. and... Uh, got yourself to England and you told me you've even taken yourself 
to Haiti. Yeah, been around the world. Hope to hope to go. Tell us about places. going to Haiti, starting with what you go through trying to get on and off a plane, and how accommodating or not a co- accommodating airports and airlines can be. Oh yeah, traveling's a bitch in a wheelchair especially a power wheelchair so um wasn't until recently that i started traveling in a power wheelchair or traveling alone um before i would mostly have strong-bodied people with me um and a manual chair and and more assistance again i'm only 60 pounds so i'm not like i'm i'm fairly feasible to get around um inaccessible things But yeah, the older I get, like the more it bothers me. And um, if I'm traveling alone in my power chair, which I have been doing often to the Bay um, and even New York and and, uh, anyway, they they take your wheelchair, your $30,000 wheelchair, custom fitted wheelchair, and they throw it under the plane with all the bags yeah this chair weighs 360 pounds without me in it so it's it's a monster and they like take your chair away from you you get strapped to this little aisle chair and they like get you to your seat and and then you don't go to the bathroom until you land because you can't get on the toilet like and then, and then you pray to any god you believe in that your wheelchair get makes it on the plane, unscathed, and yeah, the airlines, scaffed. yeah, the airlines destroy wheelchairs every day. It's like such a common problem for people yeah. with disabilities, and not just wheelchairs, but like canes, walkers, any kind of mobility aids, like you name it. They trash them, and you're left fucked when it's usually a long wait time to get anything repaired because everything's so custom and monopolized. Like it, it, it's really a pain in the ass, um, and it it has killed people. Um, United Airlines killed killed a woman a couple of years ago by destroying her chair, and um, yeah, it's a really really shitty reality for us and how did that wind up, how did they wind up killing her well because they destroyed her chair she had a pretty like special seating system so a lot of people that like sit in wheelchairs for so long throughout the day like have to have a custom seat so that you don't get like pressure sores um and you have to have like a way to tilt your body um because all of our bodies are different. Our seats are, like, very customized to us. So her chair was destroyed. They put her in a loner chair. Loner chairs are, like, shitty and violet and not your chair. Like, it takes so long to get used to a chair. And then she, like, developed all these, like, medical problems from not having her chair, her her means of life. Um, and she passed away. Somehow, you and your chair, whichever one we're using, got all the way to Haiti mm-hmm. unscathed and made it home. And you obviously got around in that country. What brought you to Haiti in the first place? I did not bring my power chair to Haiti, that's for sure. And I would not ever bring my power chair to Haiti unless I was being hosted by other people in power wheelchairs um i went to haiti i had been collaborating with the rappers from haiti since the earthquake the big earthquake a guy from another band in town had gone down to do some like relief efforts volunteering and um he came back with like all this recordings of dope rappers rapping in Creole and I'm pretty snobby about rap and it was like so good I didn't even like need it to be translated like the flow was dope Creole's like a really Creole is just like a rapper language um it's like hard it's got like a dope rhythm cadence to it so I started like sending them beats 
And every time he would go back to Haiti, he'd set up like a DIY studio in the camp, like the displaced camp for all these Haitians that didn't have anywhere to live after the earthquake. And then I started working with Youth on Record, that that teaching organization and um, the founder. We wanted to pilot basically what we were doing here at Youth on Record in Haiti with our rapper friends teaching um, music production classes. And so we brought a hella laptops with Ableton and microphones and headphones and my wheelchair I brought my other spare wheelchair that we painted for a music video um that Chris Bagley did yeah we went down there with all this music gear um we had a budget to to pay Haitian musicians and rappers to teach classes um for like six months and um I brought my wheelchair and then I brought a spare wheelchair that I painted um, for the first music video that Chris Bagley did with us. And I left that there. Like we just brought a bunch of gear and left it and and hired musicians to teach classes for six months. Hopefully it didn't all get stolen and people who rapped didn't say something that offended somebody else with power and guns and take them out. I mean, or maybe I'm been reading too much stuff about Haiti that makes it appear more dangerous than it actually is. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of the music we were getting. I mean, like, yeah, it's like real. <laughs> it's it's rough in Haiti for sure, but there were like we have this one rap that's like a cholera public service announcement from like when the UN brought a bunch of cholera right after the earthquake and like yeah because because Haitian Creole is like such such a hard language like and because they're very black like it's easy to assume that like their rap music is like violent and that's not that's definitely not the case like (laughs) there's as with any kind of rap music there's rap music of all kinds there's like the empowerment there's the fuck the system there's the gangster rap there's the revolution rap i mean haiti is the most revolutionary place in the world i mean they've overthrown every colonizer that's ever touched their island and they've yeah like everybody there is all about freedom freedom over everything like freedom over money freedom over politics freedom it's a really really well magic place and yeah they're the first how long were you there uh almost five weeks they're the first independent wow. black um republic in the world um, right. they overthrew the french the spanish the brits and the americans so yeah the music the rap yeah. music is a reflection of of all of that it's a uh, it's a wild place. It's definitely the Wild West. There's very little wheelchair access to everybody I did meet that was in a wheelchair, like, doesn't go very far. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, just being a white person is, like, uh, you don't belong or, like, you, you stick out like a sore thumb. But then being, like, a tiny white girl in a wheelchair yeah i was it was a trip going anywhere for me like i had to hire like some homies to like be my bodyguards and like get me through um because because it was a lot didn't you tell me at one point that there were people occasionally freaking out at the sight of you on the street not just because you were white or small but just assumed you were some kind of demon yeah i mean something from satan didn't you tell me that or not probably yeah like you know haiti haiti's like a real magic place and disability is seen a lot like as a curse so um there's like a lot of a lot of that ideology around disability and like there was a lot of like gawking and like crowding around because you know it was just yeah people don't see that you know i mean it's not even really represented in the media much here in the states or like other places but like especially in haiti like you do not see anyone like me so it was like a real spectacle it was a real spectacle for me to go anywhere 
yeah, people would gather and like, yeah, it was, it was a trip. Back across the water, Mm -hmm. disability activist issues. Um, and, and some of the people who do it, um, do you know who Mike Irvin is? Do you know him? Mm. He writes a column in the progressive magazine called smart ass cripple and also blogs at smart ass cripple. And he is, very, very full on and very, very educational every single month. And one of the thing, one of his columns that really kind of rattled me was how there are still, you know, hospital corporations, medical corporations, Republic thugs who don't want to pay for Medicaid or anything who are still trying to ram disabled people into nursing homes and throw away the key. I get the impression Mike Irvin may be a little bit more disabled, have more need more help taking care of himself than you do. It seems like I think he has to be help with his clothes and eating and bathing and things like that. All the things that some of the more cruel elements who run countries, I mean, Hitler just wanted everybody killed. But I think if you're behind closed doors, you've got budget hawks like Paul Ryan or some of the modern ones. They're probably not much different. But the the, uh, the, the whole idea that we should, after all the Americans with Disability Act and accessibility, just put people back in nursing homes so that nursing home monies can profit off of them with government aid and they don't get to go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, eugenics is a real thing. And uh, people with disabilities have for a long time been seen better off dead than alive. Or if we can't kill them all, then out of sight, out of mind, right? Institutionalize, incarcerate. It's It still goes back to that, like, better off dead mentality that it's, it's not as, like, draconian. I mean... It sounds draconian in in certain ways, and then like you know, with this with this COVID shit, it's like eugenics is like it's not behind closed doors. It's like you know, millions and millions of people have died and are going to continue to die of COVID. And the only reason like it's okay <laughs> to the government is because majority of the people that are dying are are already disabled and are already seen as like unfit or unproductive, um, unable to contribute to the economy the same way that, you know, more fit people are. And uh, yeah, like the nursing home, like people have fought so goddamn hard to be able to live in their homes and live in their communities. Yet, here we are, like, in this public health pandemic that is just completely disposing disabled bodies by the millions. And, like, um, a lot of people aren't even batting an eye about it, you know? It's like, it's whoa, <laughs> you know? And that's, yeah. um, you know, COVID runs rampant in institutional settings and in nursing homes, and it also is like out here everywhere so people with disabilities like yeah it's really a fucking fight to stay alive where are you with a sector of hardline anti-abortion people who claim that a major reason to ban that reproductive right and that choice is because allowing abortions discriminates against the disabled because some people get abortions if they find out their child is going to be born severely disabled. Yeah, there's always been like, there's a lot of people that continue to fight really hard to keep disabled babies and kids alive. Again, they're seen better off dead than not. And yet, like, ultimately... I'm pro-choice, of course. Like, you you can't raise a disabled kid in this environment easily, you know? And I think it's like, uh, yeah, I would be sad if, if people abort their kids because they're disabled. And, and also, I am not sad that people are aborting kids because we can't take care of all the ones that are living right now. So... Yeah. Um, and a lot of 
a lot of the hardline anti-abortion people, they care about their own, the, the unborn, but once they're born, fuck them. Exactly. No and, aid, you know, no Medicaid, you know the type. Yeah, and people <laughs> would rather, again, people would rather just dispose disabled bodies than actually fix the problem. So like assisted suicide is usually just an easier method of like undoing disabled people that need fucking health care. It's easier for a judge to say you should die than it is for a judge to say you should have access to housing and health care. It's it's just like it's easier it's easier to dispose disabled bodies than it is to make more access, which is like fucked up. And that's that's well, some, some people, modern day. <laughs> some people who choose to end their lives, a major factor in it is that they are, you know, they're dying of a degenerative disease and they are in excruciating pain twenty four seven. Yeah, like once again I'm pro choice, you know, but I'm just saying like historically those laws disabled people have had an easier time being able to kill themselves than they have getting housing and health care. <laughs> and on top of that, being paid properly if they get a job. Another one of Mike Irvin's huge complaints, and boy, I agree with them here, is it's still legal in most states to pay a disabled person less than minimum wage yeah. because they're disabled. You know, it's part of the Fair Labor Standards Act, ironic name from 1938, 14C, certificates saying, okay, this person's disabled, we don't have to pay them as much. And his quote was about 70,000 people in this country are subject to being paid sub-minimum wage because they are disabled. It's also not even legal for disabled people to get married. Like, everybody thought that with this, like, equal marriage shit, that, like, everybody could be married now, but, like, disabled people to this day cannot get married if they're relying on benefits. They will lose their benefits. Like, I would lose my benefits. Unbelievable. Overnight, if I could. But you, you have, married. but you and your boo have gotten married but not through the legal system, just unofficial. Didn't you tell me you were doing different marriages in different places to yes, celebrate are, your union? We are unlawfully wedded, and we hope to have many weddings and continue to. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can legally marry people. I can legally marry people, whether you tell the authorities or not. I'll do a wedding. Well, we could have a punk wedding too. Yeah, we'll probably do like a wedding tour. I don't know. There you go. Well, we are running out of time here. So uh want to thank you for being here, as well as, as you put it, when one of your interviews after uh, nailing Cory Gardner's office, I think this is off of Democracy Now!, is you see yourself and your art and your activism as carrying the torch of other pioneers, rule breakers, crusaders, dating back even in Denver to the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s, um, you know, the Chicanos and uh, Adapt and many others. And as you put it, you're carrying the torch. And boy, you definitely are. So uh, here's to more arson for both of us. Yes. Bye for now. <laughs> Thanks for having me.